0: Good morning, faith family. This morning we're going to be wrapping up our connect with God series in which we've been considering a number of questions together that help us to better grasp how to live the Christian life, how to grow in our relationship with God. And today we're going to be finishing that series by asking this question together, how do I fight evil now? I first began to consider this question seriously about 26 years ago. It was the summer of 1992, Boys to Men's End of the Road was topping the billboard charts. I was 13 years old and my parents had decided to take us along with a group from our church up to a conference center in Green Lake, Wisconsin for what was called Sunday School Week, which for a 13 year old sounded like the pinnacle of summer fun. Now, you need to understand what kind of 13-year-old I was. I was a 13-year-old who wouldn't have listened to Boys to Men's End of the Road because I only listened to Christian music. But I was the type of 13-year-old who would read anything I could get my hands on, and that included novels by Stephen King. And at that moment, I had just recently completed a book he had called The Stand, which is all about the final battle between good and evil, which ends, spoiler alert, with the hand of God coming down from heaven and using a nuclear bomb to blow up Las Vegas. Let's just say that King had like a loose understanding of Revelation. But my parents, perhaps out of concern for me and where my interests lie, they decided to provide me a different book along a similar subject about the battle between good and evil, but this one written by a Christian author. And this book was called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was super popular when it came out. Now I won't go into too much detail, but basically it's about a small town pastor who teams up with the local newspaper editor, of course, to stop a new age cult from taking over the town. And literal angels and demons figure prominently into the story. And as I read this book, riding along on this old Bluebird church bus that we were taking up to Wisconsin, I began to get images in my mind of guardian angels hanging off the sides as they grasped the top with their swords drawn to protect us from whatever we might encounter in the dark, lost land of America's Midwest. And I have to tell you that reading this President darkness terrified me more than anything I had ever read in Stephen King. It felt very real to me. I began to worry about demons being everywhere and it wasn't long before I was naming them, I was binding them, I was casting them out, all that kind of stuff as a 13 year old in Jesus' name. They seemed to be concentrated in my bathroom for some reason I'd be walking in like, demon of lie, be gone in Jesus' name. And I was doing this not driven because of my faith in him, I was doing this out of motivation, out of my fear of them. I was terrified, but that wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was that I was taking my theology and my spiritual practice from a fictional novel and not from God's word. And I tell you that story because there is a lot out there that is written in response to this question of how we can fight evil. But a lot of it bears more resemblance to Lord of the Rings than it does anything prescribed in the scriptures. And that's why it is vitally important for, all, for us to always go to God's word first and foremost. So I want us to do that this morning by looking at Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me, Ephesians chapter six. Now, as we've been considering these questions in the sermon series, we've been treating them topically, which means some weeks we've been looking at a variety of different scriptures in God's word that helps us to answer that particular question. Other weeks we've camped out in one particular passage. Now there's lots of different places that the Bible addresses the way that God's people can fight evil, but here in Ephesians six, we find the most clear and concise teaching on this subject. And so with that in mind, if you will, please follow along as I read Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand. "'Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, "'righteousness like armor on your chest, "'and your feet sandaled with readiness "'for the gospel of peace. "'And every situation take up the shield of faith "'with which you can extinguish "'all the flaming arrows of the evil one. "'Take the helmet of salvation "'and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. "'Pray at all times in the Spirit "'with every prayer and request, "'and stay alert with all perseverance "'and intercession for all the saints.'" Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Now, this book of Ephesians is actually a letter It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Ephesus, a church that he was instrumental in planting and establishing. And it's not a peacetime letter. In many ways, it is a wartime letter. It's like a dispatch from a POW general sent to his troops that are still on the front lines. Because Paul and the Ephesian believers, they are under attack from evil, Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's imprisoned because of his bold witness to the gospel. He's facing persecution of extreme nature that's going to eventually result in his death. And then the Ephesian believers are experiencing attacks from evil in some different ways. They're surrounded by pagan religions. They have those in their midst who are doubting their faith. There are false teachers among them. There's disunity between The believers of Jewish background and those of a Gentile background. And there are even families and households that are breaking up because of the sin of its members. And all of these things, all of these things were the direct result of evil at work in their midst. And that's why when we ask this question of how do we fight evil, we must begin with this. Number one, know your enemy. Know your enemy. Now here's a news flash: just as there was in the day of Paul and the Ephesian believers, there is evil at active work in the world today. And when you hear that news flash, your response may be, "Yeah, no kidding. We recognize evil around us. But there's three specific sources of evil that I want us to see. two of them we recognize more readily than the third. The first one is just the evil of this world. It's the evil that results of the sin of others that live in this world. These are things like murder. These are things like war and genocide, school shootings, sexual abuse, bribery, corruption. However, there's sin in this world that's also simply the result of living in a fallen world. Things like disease or famine or disaster. There are sins that aren't necessarily uh, practiced by us. But that might affect us in very specific ways. Sins of this world, evil in this world. But there's also evil within each of us. We don't need to fall into the trap of seeing ourselves just as victims of evil. We need to readily recognize that we are also perpetrators of evil. We know what it is to have a sin nature within us, to be so in its grip that we can't help but do anything but sin. That is why Paul earlier in the book of Ephesians describes us prior to our salvation from Christ as being dead in our trespasses and sins, completely corrupted, destroyed, by them. However, we also know that even once we become a Christ follower, we know what it's like to continue to struggle with that flesh, to continue to struggle with that sin, to do those things that we don't want to do. We know that there is evil in this world and that there is evil within each of us, within our flesh. But then the third source of evil that we need to see is the one that Paul is addressing directly, and that is the evil of our enemy. As he wrote in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The war we wage against evil is not so much a physical war as it is a spiritual war because the forces of evil we fight against are spiritual. And they in turn have a spiritual leader who in the previous verse Paul names the devil that we also know as Satan. Now, we don't really like to talk about Satan that much. We're not necessarily jazzed to talk about sin, but at least when we're dealing with sin, with the evil of this world and the evil of ourselves, we can mo- more readily recognize it. We can see it. We can experience it. We can hear it. We can it feel it. And we often can also recognize the solutions to that evil, the things that need to be done, whether or not we're able to implement them ourselves or not. But when it comes to Satan, things can seem a bit more different. We view him as kind of a spiritual boogeyman that haunts our lives, and he does as he pleases. We don't easily see what recourse we can have against him. And so we often react to him like little children do to the boogeyman. We like to run into our room and climb up under our covers and pull them over our heads and just pretend that everything's going to be okay. But Faith Family, we cannot fall into that trap. We have to know our enemy. We have to recognize him and his forces for who they are. C.S. Lewis warned against this in his preface to the Screwtape Letters when he wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We cannot be so materialistic that we only focus on the physical and ignore the spiritual reality of Satan's existence. If we're ever going to fight him effectively, we have to know him. So then let's begin knowing him with this truth that we get from Peter's warning in 1 Peter 5, 8. He wrote, "'Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour.'" This word adversary here just means opponent. But I don't want you to get into your mind a picture of an opposing counsel in our courtroom. Yes, Satan can be an accuser, but he is also much more than that. This type of opponent is more like the type of opponent that's faced in a boxing ring, or maybe even more apt, a UFC fighting cage. This is a guy who is coming to grapple with you and to use whatever he's got to take you down. After all, that's the way that Paul pictures our fight against them. He calls it a struggle. And the word there translated struggle, it could also mean to grapple or wrestle. It's a picture of hand-to-hand combat, a personal battle. This is why we cannot react to Satan as a child does the boogeyman, why we can't go climb under our covers and pretend everything's gonna be okay and hope that someone else addresses the problem of evil. Because his attacks are personal attacks against each and every follower of Christ and we are all enlisted into the fight against him. We all must grapple with him. But he has crafty ways about him. That's why Paul describes them as schemes. Satan is active, he's an active agent in the world today. He is scheming against us, he has plans. In fact, the word that's used here, scheme, it was often used to describe how a wild animal would cunningly stalk its prey and then pounce on it to be able to devour it. Well, doesn't that bring to mind again what we just read in 1 Peter, the way that he described Satan as the prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for anyone to devour? If you've uh, ever driven up I-65 from Montgomery to Birmingham, you've probably noticed that sign that's on the side of the road, close to the, to the verbana exit. It's got the cartoon devil on it. Yeah, complete with the horns and the tail and holding a scythe. And it says, go to church or the devil will get you. Now, if you're anything like me, you might have some issues with the wording here and maybe even question the methodology of using a sign like this. But what you can't deny deny is one of the inherent truths contained in it. And that is this. The devil is out to get you. He and his forces are. They are against you and they attack you. And Satan's strategy is this. Ultimately Satan's strategy is to use the world and the flesh to lead us into sin and away from God. So to use those other two types of evil, the evil of this world and the evil of our flesh to lead us into sin and away from God. He'll use the evils that we experience from others in this world to tell us that God must not be good since this evil exists, to tell us that God must not be in control since people are able to do these evil things, since there is no hope, there is no answer. He uses the evil in your flesh to tell you that you're not really saved, you're not really a Christian, you're a failure, you're a loser, God doesn't love you. These are the ways that he uses these things in order to try to lead us into sin and away from God. But we have to recognize that they are all lies. And we know that because that is Satan's chief tactic, is to lie, to use deceit. Scripture describes him as the father of lies, but that's not all he'll use. Satan also afflicts, he hinders, he steals, he tempts, he persecutes. And we all know from firsthand experience just how effective he really is. So we cannot ignore him. But we also shouldn't give him more credit than he deserves. We shouldn't elevate him to a position that he does not deserve. After all, Satan is our enemy, but he is a vanquished foe. He has been defeated. We don't fight evil to gain victory, we fight evil. From victory. So don't elevate Satan to a statue that he doesn't hold. Yes, Scripture describes him as the God of this world, but that's a little G God. And that is minuscule compared to the big G God that we deserve. The differences between those two letters is enormous. God has won. Satan is defeated. He knows it. And we know it. He's going down. But his purpose is to take as many people down with him along the way. And that's why we must, number two, rely on God's strength. Rely on God's strength. Once we know our enemy, we have to measure ourselves against him. And when we do, we have to honestly admit that We don't stand a chance. Satan regularly and often succeeds in his strategy to lead us to sin and away from God. We are all weak opponents. We don't like to admit it, but we have to. That's why Paul begins this passage the way he does. He writes, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. God knows our weaknesses even better than we do, yet he loves us enough to provide us the strength that we need. Paul is able to give this encouragement to the Ephesians because he knows what this is like firsthand. Listen to how he describes his situation in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, "'A thorn in the flesh was given to me, "'a messenger of Satan to torment me "'so that I would not exalt myself. "'Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times "'that it would leave me, but he said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you. "'My power is perfected in weakness.'" It was because of Paul's weakness that God's power was able to be so displayed in such a mighty way in his life. And that's true for us as well. If we had the strength to thwart the devil's commands, the the devil's schemes, then we wouldn't have all these commands to be strengthened in God. We wouldn't have these opportunities for the Lord to use his strength in our lives to show just how powerful he is. Now Paul's challenge here, be strengthened, It's given in the passive voice. That means it is something that happens to us from an outside source. But it's also given in the present tense, which means it's something that's happening right now and continues to happen in each moment of now. When I think about the reality of this, I think about... um, the old Popeye the Sailor Man cartoons I used to watch as a kid. Any Popeye fans in here? In every episode, there would come a point where Popeye was in conflict, usually with Bluto because Bluto was trying to steal away his girlfriend, Olive Oil, right? And at some point, Bluto would get the upper hand and Popeye would be beat down, seemingly defeated until what? spinach there would magically appear a can of spinach from somewhere maybe a friend maybe in his pocket forgot about it, I don't know that can of spinach he'd pop it open the spinach would go into his mouth it would shoot down into his forearms which would expand with such great power that he could defend he could then defeat Bluto with no problem that's a little bit of what it's like for us that whenever we need God's strength, it is there for us. And the reality is that we are so weak, we need his strength in each and every moment. And every time we turn for it, it is there. But of course, the source of his strength is God himself. He strengthens us with what Paul refers to as his vast strength. Now, God's strength is vast in a number of different ways. First, it's vast because it's endless. Remember that God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. He has all the power, an endless supply. It doesn't run out. But secondly, God's strength is also vast in that it is sufficient. We don't need His strength plus our strength. Thankfully, we don't have to bring anything to the table because we have nothing to bring. Regardless of what we face in our lives, even when we are at our lowest, at our weakest, we can rely on His strength to sustain us because His strength is sufficient. It's enough. And third, God's strength is vast in that it cannot be overcome. Paul gave a picture of this earlier in Ephesians when he prays for the believers there in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Did you catch that faith family? His power and strength are immeasurable. We know this because he proved it in raising Christ from the dead and then setting him above, what? Every ruler and authority, power and dominion. That includes the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this darkness that our struggle is against. And that power is now available to us and for us. Basically, we need to be strengthened by God's vast strength Because though we are weaker than our enemy, he is infinitely stronger. And his strengthening of us, it's not arbitrary. He strengthens us for a very specific purpose. He strengthens us to, number three, stand and resist. Stand and resist. This is the central admonition Paul has given his readers. Look at how many times he says it here. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. For this reason, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything, to take your stand. And the beginning of verse 14: Stand, therefore. Now that might seem a little odd to us. Here is what is widely considered the most useful passage concerning the subject of spiritual warfare, and the way that Paul describes our fight is to stand, to resist. But I think this seems weird to us because we like to think of spiritual warfare as happening a bit more like a battle in Braveheart. We wanna be standing there with all our comrades decked out in our armor and weapons and with our faces painted blue and we want a William Wallace Jesus galloping along with his horse, rallying us for the cause and then leading us into the glorious fray, into victory and freedom. But that's not the picture of spiritual warfare that's here. Of course, if we have that in mind, no wonder that stand seems very weird, but I think it's because we need to think of stand differently. It's not like it is I'm standing here just doing nothing. The only resistance I'm providing is against the soft breeze of the ACs above us. This is resistance is a little more like going to the beach. So my family's gonna be headed down to Gulf Shores a little later this week. And you might know the feeling of whenever you're walking into the Gulf and you begin to be, have those waves crash against you. And for someone my size, you know, no big deal. Those waves are nothing. But if you consider my, my five-year-old son, Haven, they're a bit more formidable of a foe. And Haven has to be very careful or as he's walking in, those waves are gonna catch him off guard and he's gonna be knocked down and he's gonna have a face full of seashells and salt water up his nose in no time. But instead, Haven needs to be able to stand. He needs to be able to take a specific stance, to plant his feet, to be alert and vigilant, aware of what is around him, prepared so that he doesn't get knocked down. That's the picture of standing that Paul is giving us here in Ephesians 6. Author and pastor Stanley D. Gale, he said it this way, that standing is not passive. The idea is not to stand around, but to stand firm. It is to stand like an oak against the winds of Satan's lies that would sway us, against the floods of his temptations that would sweep us away, and against the leeches of his accusations that would deprive us of grace. It is to stand rooted and built up in Christ, strengthened in the faith. If our victory is in Christ then we are to be grounded in Christ, hearing and doing his word, living in the power of his resurrection, following his example, resting in his victory. That's the strategy we implement in order to fight evil. We stand, we resist. It's the very strategy that's prescribed elsewhere in scripture. Peter, following his description of Satan as a roaring lion, says, resist him, firm in the faith. And James makes it even more clear in James 4, 7, where he writes, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If we stand and resist, then Satan will flee from us. That's literally all it takes. So then, how do we do that? How do we stand and resist? Well, one, we have to know our enemy. We have to be vigilant and aware of him. Two, we need to be strengthened by God. So we need to rely on God's strength, on his power, not on our own weakness. But even more than that, we need to stand by being clothed in him and his power, which is why we also need to, number four, armor up. Armor up. Paul tells us twice to do this in this passage. In verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God. And in verse 13, he writes, take up the full armor of God. The action in both of these verses is ones of getting dressed, of putting clothes on, of taking spiritual qualities, godly qualities, and putting them on as if you were putting on garments. And this is used throughout Scripture in a number of different ways. Paul especially, even culminating what he writes in Romans 13:14, which is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's concern is that our outward life would match the inward reality, that since we have been redeemed by Christ, since the old is gone and the new has come, that we would remove our old selves and we would put on Christ. And this, again, it's something that we do daily, something that we do constantly, something that we do moment to moment. And Paul just uses images here of armor for these qualities in order to emphasize his point that we need to resist the schemes of the devil. But these qualities we put on, they're not just useful as armor, they're useful because they are God's qualities. The armor is his and it comes from him. It's also worth noting here that Paul charges his readers to put on the whole armor. We don't just look to this for the pieces that we feel like we need in a specific instance when dealing with some kind of specific situation. At all times, in every circumstance, in every moment, we need to be clothed in the entire armor of God. We can't make the mistake of ignoring any one of them. In his sermon, Shoes for Pilgrims and Warriors, Charles Spurgeon explained why when he said that Satan will attack you sometimes by force and sometimes by fraud. By might or by slight, he will seek to overcome you and no unarmed man can stand against him. Never go out with all your armor on for you can never tell where you may meet the devil. He is not omnipresent, but nobody can tell where he is not. For he and his troops of devils appear to be found everywhere everywhere on this earth. We must not be caught ill prepared. God has so graciously given us everything that we need from head to toe so that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. We just need to put them all on. So then to begin, let's keep the truth of God's word central. Keep the truth of God's word central. Paul pictures truth as a belt which in a soldier's uniform would have obviously been in the center part of his body, around his waist, and it would have encompassed his whole being. would have gone all the way around. And that is what truth is to be for us. It's to be central. It's to be all-encompassing. Well, what exactly then is the source of this truth? Well, one, we know that it is Jesus Christ himself. In John 14, 6, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But just a few chapters later in John, in John 17, when he's praying for his followers, he prays this. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The truth we need in our lives to sanctify us, to keep us from evil, to make us and keep us holy, it is the truth in God's word which contains the truth of Christ. This is how we stand and resist the lies of the devil. Remember, that is his chief tactic, and we combat those lies with truth. But that, of course, means that we need to know the truth. We need to read God's word. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate on it. We have to use it as our standard and our efforts to understand it and to interpret it. Not only do we need to know the truth, we also have to walk in the truth. We have to live according to what it is we find in his word. And then that naturally leads us to the second piece of armor, which empowers us to live righteously because God has made you righteous. Live righteously because God has made you righteous. Paul describes righteousness as being like armor for your chest, like a breastplate, which would have been the piece of armor that a soldier would wear to protect his most vital organs, chief among them being his heart. And our heart should be chief concerns for us as well. Just as it is for a soldier, we should desire to protect it as Christ followers. In Proverbs 4, 23, we we are told to guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Other translations say that it is the wellspring of life. In other words, everything that we think, feel, say, and do, it flows from our heart. So prior to faith in Christ, our heart is gripped by sin, and therefore sin influences everything else that we do. But when we are saved, when we are saved by grace through faith, God makes us righteous. He makes us right in his sight. He declares us righteous. He cleanses our hearts of all of our sins and he fills it with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. This is why it is so vital to see righteousness in this way because Satan can't get a grip there in our hearts if it is filled up with the righteousness of God. But of course, we know that that doesn't necessarily mean that we never sin again. Again, we know what it's like to struggle with that sin even once we have been declared righteous in God's sight. But even though that's the case, what we can know It's because we've been made righteous. We are no longer slaves to that sin. It is no longer in control of us. And since that is true, we need to live righteously. In an effort to keep from falling into legalism, where we try to earn God's favor by doing good things, we sometimes downplay the need of obedience to God in our lives, but obedience is vital. Righteous living is essential. We live righteously, not to earn his favor but because he has made us righteous and when we do our hearts will be protected and fortified because they will be filled up with the things of him and even in those moments of weakness where we fall into sin we do not leave that sin unconfessed leave it as an open chink in our armor whether we go to him we confess it we seek his forgiveness and we readily find it from him and again that righteousness as armor in our lives is shored up so that we can resist those temptations of the devil to fall back into sin next we need to prepare to carry the gospel prepare to carry the gospel paul wrote here stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace Now we know that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's interesting here in this passage about spiritual warfare, that Paul describes this gospel as being a gospel of peace. But he does this of course, because that's what the gospel brings us. It brings peace. Before putting our faith in Christ, Paul not only describes us as being dead in our trespasses and sins, but in other places like Colossians 121, he actually describes us as enemies of God. That when we were living in sin, we were living in open hostility to God. We were on the opposing side, yet the gospel brought us peace. Even while we were still sinners, even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And through faith in his sacrifice, we are reconciled to God. That is why even in the midst of the worst conflict, of the worst of Satan's attacks that we face in this world, we can have peace. The peace that passes all understanding. Peace that is not an absence of conflict in our life, not an absence of attack in our lives, but peace that is in the midst of it because God is a God of peace and he has promised to be with us. That is why it's described as like the sandals because that is what we stand firm in. We don't have to be knocked around by Satan's lies because we have peace with God. We've been reconciled with him and it is his strength that enables us to stand firm. But also with these shoes of the gospel of peace, we are prepared, we're ready. We're ready to carry it forward because it's not just the means by which we stand. It's the message that we are called to carry with us. The whole armor of God helps us to stand and not be swayed, to not be pushed back. But these shoes also help us to be ready for any opportunity we have to make his gospel known. That we look around us and we recognize that the war that we face in this world is a war for people's souls. And God in his infinite wisdom has entrusted the message of the gospel of peace to each and every single one of us. And we need to be ready to share it with those enemy combatants so that they too might be reconciled and become brothers and sisters in arms along with us. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 10, 13 through 15, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We need to have a firm grasp on the gospel to know it so that we are ready to carry it forward. Because we are the ones who have been sent to preach so that those who call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. In addition to this, we must... Trust in God's protection. Trust in God's protection. Paul wrote to in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, whenever we think of a shield today, we might be tempted to picture kind of a smallish round shield, maybe one that's decked out in a red, white, and blue motif with a big star on it that Captain America might carry around and use as offensively as he does defensively. But that's not the picture of a shield that Paul has here. He would have had a picture, something more of like a Roman infantryman would have carried with him. These were shields that were described to be door-like. They were rectangular in shape, maybe as tall as five or six feet. And a soldier could place them firmly in front of them, could duck down behind them. And they were treated with a flame-retardant material so that any arrow that was shot, that soldier could be confident that he was protected from those attacks. And that's what faith does for each of us. It serves as that kind of shield to extinguish the fiery arrows that Satan launches towards us. In order to do that, we need to bolster our faith. We need to strengthen our trust in God's protection. Well, so then how exactly do we do that? Well, one, we need to sit under the teaching of God's word. We need to come here to gather together to hear it preached. We need to be a part of a small group where it is being taught. We can listen to sermon podcasts, but we need to sit under the teaching of God's word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word. Secondly, we can bolster our faith by spending time with other followers of Jesus. Groups of Roman soldiers could form something that they called a shield wall in which they would all line up together and they would each place their shield in front of them with them overlapping and would all get down behind it so that it would protect the entire line of soldiers behind them. We can do that for one another as well that even if there was a weakness in the shield of one of those soldiers, that weakness could be bolstered by the strength of the shields on either side of them. That's what we can do for one another. That's why Christian community is so important. That even when we are fe- feeling beat down, when we are doubting, when we are struggling in our faith, that we can have others come alongside us and they, they, their faith can bolster our own. Third, we need to spend time in personal study of God's word, that the more we read and reflect upon his faithful fulfillment of his promises, then the more our trust in him will grow. And we can bolster our faith as we pray. As we go to God with every question, with every concern, even with every doubt, he can handle them all anything we want to bring before him. And as we seek after him first and foremost, it helps to protect us from our tendency to try to work out problems for ourselves or to doubt God because of Satan's lies. Then in addition to trusting God's protection, we also hold to the hope of your salvation. We need to hold to the hope of your salvation. Paul describes our salvation as being like a helmet, which was obviously the piece of armor that protected a soldier's head, and obviously inside of that head, his brain, his his mind, his his thoughts. And our salvation does the same thing for us. But how? Well, it helps us if we think about the ways that Scripture speaks of our salvation ha- taking place in kind of three different time frames. So first, there's our past salvation that if we have repented and put our faith in him, then God has graciously saved us. There is a moment in the past in which he took us from being a sinner and he made us a saint, in which he declared us righteous, in which he justified us. And at that moment, that time in the past, we were made right in his sight and forever sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal and nothing can change it. That's our past salvation. But there's also an aspect of our salvation that occurs here in the present. Bible also presents our salvation as something that is ongoing. Since that day we believed and he saved us, God has then continued to graciously transform us more and more into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul described it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He described us as those who are being saved, that we are all works in progress. However, in addition to Being saved in the past and an ongoing sense of being saved now in which we are being saved. There's also a future aspect of our salvation. That the work that was begun in the past is continuing in our lives today. It is one day going to be fulfilled in the future. Paul wrote in Romans 8.30 that those who he predestined, he also called And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That in the future, when Christ returns or either when we die and we go to be with him, we will be perfected and we will enjoy our God for all eternity. And in that day, we can know that Satan's attacks are done and that they ultimately will have come to nothing. Commenting on this, John MacArthur wrote these words. If we lose hope, and the future promise of salvation, there can be no security in the present. The helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle with Satan will not last forever and we will be victorious in the end. We know the battle is only for this life and even a long earthly life is no more than a split second compared to eternity with our Lord in heaven. We are not in a race we can lose. So hold on to the hope of your salvation. Think on it often, and this hope will protect your mind from Satan's deceit. Then this brings us to the final piece of God's armor, what Paul calls calls the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now there are two different words used for sword in the New Testament. The one used here is describing kind of a short, two-edged sword that could be used both defensively and offensively in battle. And so I want us to draw some conclusions from both of those potential aspects of the way that the sword of the Spirit can be used. So first, in a defensive manner, with the sword of the Spirit, we can answer every attack with God's Word. Answer every attack with God's Word. Remember, Satan's chief means of attack is through the use of lies and deceit. We've already seen the importance to keep the truth of God's Word central in order to combat those lies. But even more specifically, we need to answer each and every one of the devil's attacks with God's word. This is the strategy that Jesus himself applied. And in Matthew four, when the spirit of God leads Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And Satan comes to him with his lies, twisting God's word even to try and serve his own purposes. And in each of those three instances, Jesus answers everyone by quoting scripture back to Satan. And then what's the result of this? Well, Jesus resists by answering Satan's attacks with God's word, and then what does Satan do? He flees from his presence. Remember, that's what James promised. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We saw this take place in the life of Jesus, and this can be true for us just as it was for him. But then, from an offensive position, we can also use the sword of the Spirit to advance with boldness to advance with boldness. We don't just fight evil from a defensive position. We also seek to make up ground, to conquer areas of his kingdom for God's kingdom. This is ultimately the work of God, but we are the tools with which he uses to accomplish this accomplish this. He does this by having us advance with boldness. And boldness of what? Boldness to the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul himself is asking for just a little bit later in verse 20 where he's asked of the Ephesians to pray that I might be bold enough to speak as I should. Our struggle against the spiritual forces, it's not just about us. Remember, it is about others. It is a war for souls. And we can see them freed from that grip of sin in their lives by Proclaiming the gospel to them just as it was proclaimed to us, so that they might believe, so that they might be strengthened by his strength, so they might rely on his strength, so that they might stand and resist, so that they might suit up with his armor by being clothed in him. This is what the call is for each and every single one of us. This is the way that we fight evil. If you want to fight sin in your own life, then boldly preach the gospel to yourself. If you want to fight the evil in this world, then boldly preach the gospel. You want to right injustices, you want to right wrongs, you want to see sin extinguished, then make disciples. That's why it's there, that's how we conquer God. It's the way that the kingdom of God overtakes the kingdom of this world is if we advance with boldness. Then there is one last answer to how we fight evil, and that is this. We have to pray. We have to pray. There's a grammatical connection here between verses 14 and 18. That Not only do we stand by putting on armor, but we also stand by praying. This is a specific type of prayer. This is warfare prayer. And what does this warfare prayer look like? Well, one, it's constant. We pray at all times. It's not something for only when we rise or right before meals or when we're about to put our heads on the pillow at night, that we need to be ready and prepared and we need to be praying to God in every situation, taking every moment, every thought, every feeling, every temptation to him. It's meant to be a regular, constant practice in our lives. This warfare prayer is also in the spirit. This means that we pray with the help that the Spirit gives us. We depend on him to help us, to, to even intercede for us, especially when we feel that we are weak and under attack. Paul encourages us with this in Romans eight twenty six, where he says that in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Recently, I decided to introduce my kids to one of my greatest joys as a child, and that was playing Super Mario Kart on the Super Nintendo. So you may not be familiar with that game specifically, but you're familiar with video games in general. And when I introduced this to them, I didn't realize how much trouble they were gonna have playing this particular game. And the reason why is because the games that they play now are on tablets, right? Which means that the screen and the controller are one and the same and you're looking at the one thing. And if you need something to move or steer, you just actually physically move the tablet and steer it. And that's where things go. My game system is very different. You've got to look at a TV screen. You've got to hold a controller in your hand and use both your hands and multiple fingers possibly to even control what's going on on the screen. And they couldn't grasp it whatsoever. They would look away from the screen and look at their controller to remember. remember. They, They would be steering and pushing buttons, but they'd be moving the controller back and forth like this. And finally, I took my daughter's story and I sat her in my lap and I had her grasp the controller with her hands and look at the screen and then I put my hands on top of hers. I said, "Don't, don't look in the controller, you focus on the screen. And as we went around the course, I would move her thumb on the joystick when it needed to move and I would press the button with her thumb when it needed to be pressed. And that way I was guiding her into what she needed to do and where she needed to go. That's a little bit like what it's like for us to pray in the Spirit, for him to help us, to intercede on behalf of us, that he grips our hearts and he guides our thoughts, steering us on the course that we should go. Warfare prayer is also marked by dependence. We go to God with our requests because we need him. He alone can provide us what we need. And like the perfect father that he is, he always answers our prayers and he gives us every good thing. And warfare prayer also keeps us vigilant. It helps us to stay alert. It constantly, when we're constantly praying, we're constantly reminded of the fight in which we are engaged. So it keeps us focused on what we need to focus on. And lastly, warfare prayer is communal. It's not just for us, but our prayer is to be, look, For all the saints, for we are engaged in a fight with evil that is personal, but we are also engaged in this fight together. We need God, we need his strength, we need his armor, but in his good wisdom, he has also created us to need one another. We are not lone soldiers, but we are an army of God, boldly advancing until we reign with him victorious forever and ever. Then when we get here at the end of Ephesians six, I think we find this interesting case study that Paul gives us. Because he's just talked about what this prayer is like and then he calls on them to specifically pray for him, to give him the words that he needs when he opens his mouth, to give him boldness to preach the things that he knows he should. Now remember, Paul is in prison because of his boldness in preaching the gospel. It doesn't seem to be a thing as we read Paul to think that he struggles with. And yet in this moment, I can't help but infer that Paul is feeling the temptation, that he's under the attack to silence his witness, to not be so bold. He's probably hurting. We know he's lonely from other passages. He may know what's going to be the ultimate outcome and maybe he's feeling beat down and defeated, but he doesn't give in Instead, he puts into practice these words, he calls them to pray for him. And I think that has an important word for us that again, we must remain vigilant. We need to remain aware that we too can get beat down. You know, if we had come in here this morning and I had just opened the floor and asked, hey, how do we fight evil? And we would just taken answers. I think we might've said things like, well, We need to know God's word. We need to be able to answer Satan's attacks with truth. We need to pray for each other. We need to spend time together. We need God to strengthen us when we feel weak. We might have come up with some of those things off the top of our heads. Yet even though we know them kind of inherently from our general knowledge of God's word, also so many of us know what it feels like to feel defeated to feel beat down, to feel like Satan's got the upper hand, that we are doing anything but standing and resisting, that we are being blown about and tossed to and fro. I know that's true for my life, and so I'm left asking, well, why is that? Well, maybe it's because I didn't do what Paul did. I didn't actually put it into practice. Maybe I'm picking and choosing the pieces of armor that I'm putting on. Maybe I'm relying on my own strength instead of God's. Maybe I'm ignoring the enemy that is actively attacking me. Whatever it is, we need all of this. We need to know our enemy. We need to rely on God's strength, to stand and resist, to armor up, and to pray. These aren't things that we do once and we're done. We must do them constantly and continuously. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave the warning this way. He describes this scenario. The Christian has put on the whole armor of God. He is filled with the strength and the power, and he has fought the battle in the evil day. Then, having done all, he is tempted to take off his armor. I have gained the victory, he says. All is well. Then, taking off his armor, he lies down in his bed. No, says the apostle, having done all, stand. Go on standing. Do not relax. Maintain the field. You are always on duty in the Christian life. You can never relax. There is no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual, spiritual realm. Faith family, do not relax, we are all on duty. In your fight with evil, stand firm and stand confident in the outcome. Heed the encouragement that the apostle John gives in 1 John 4, 4. He writes, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world.